Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. This is better. Doesn't that sound better in your ears? Hopefully. You know what I'm never going to do again, Amanda? What? I'm not going to produce episodes by myself. Fuck that. <laughs> there was a good faith effort I was like, on oh, your part. You were I, like, I think I can do it. I know. I can do it. I know these I'll tools. No. I know it. No. Wrong. Let me get my story up. You went first last time. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. I can't even get in my computer. I'll wait for you to. Oh, there it is. Okay. Let me know. I want to have your full attention, please. I'm ready. I'm going to tell you. So we're going <laughs> to leave the United States, Ooh, go back in time. What? And we're going to go back in time to mo- March 1st, 1920, to the village of Malaya Volkovka, Smolensk province <laughs> in Russia, oh. where Antonina Makarova was born. Wow. Yes. So, she's born, 1920. Later, she lived with an aunt in Moscow. She attended school. Then she graduated, worked in a leather factory. Then she worked in a knitting factory. She didn't like it. And then she transferred to a position as a waitress in the canteen of the Ilyak plant. In August 1941, she was sent to the military registration and enlistment enlistment office of Komsomol, which was a political youth organization in the Soviet Union. Her first place of service was temporarily a buffet in one of the military units. Many years later, Antonina would declare that during this period she allegedly did not take the oath and was not given a military rank. However, this is a lie. According to the documents of the Ministry of Defense in August 1941, Antonina was called up for military service, and in the fall, she became a sergeant. From the buffet, she was transferred to the post of medical order officer in the 422nd Infantry Regiment of the 170th Division of the 24th Army of the Reserve Front. Whatever what? the fuck that means. <laughs> what are those numbers? Um, and what are ranks? Like, that's something I've always wondered is, what, how did the structure of military come about and it seems like it's the same structure across it goes all the way back to ancient times yeah so someone introduced antonina to the deputy head of the lakotsky police grigory ofinov ivanin he took makarov to his service and made her his mistress she received a salary of 30 marks per month which i meant to look up what that is but i forgot free food and a room Antonina took part in several punitive operations. In the course of one of them, she inadvertently almost shot the police chief, a relative of her lover, after which she was transferred to prison service. She accidentally almost shot? Is that what I heard? No, inadvertently almost shot. Yeah. So she didn't shoot him? No, but almost. Almost did. Yeah. Inadvertently. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Antonina was among the guards from which the firing squad was formed and carried out the sentences handed down by the occupation authorities. So, Nazis. Antonina was given a machine gun and a pistol. Wow. She began to take part in the executions of Soviet partisans and civilians and soon relieved the nickname Tonka Machine Gunner. So... 
blah, blah, blah. She was given that nickname. Machine Gunner. Mm-hmm. In a number of sources, one can find a statement that Antonina allegedly liked the process of murder. Stop interrupting me. You, you gotta listen. Voice. So basically they were saying that she was getting a sadistic pleasure from this, but there's really nothing that indicates this. She had a completely prosperous family. None of her brothers and sisters were seen doing unseemly deeds, and she didn't like the, quote, work of executioner herself. She had to drown her negative feelings in alcohol oh, man. and left Lokot at the first opportunity. At the same time, according to historians, her activity in 1941 to 1943 was itself a unique phenomenon. The uniqueness lay in the fact that the executioner was a woman. The executions she carried out turned into a terrible theatrical performance. The leaders of Lukatsky's self-government came to watch them. German and Hungarian generals and officers were invited. So from her position as the machine gun girl, she was trying to extract the maximum bet. There's evidence that she took things off the people she'd killed, particularly their clothes. After partying with Ivanov, Ivanin, Antonina drank a lot and entered into, quote, indiscriminate connections for money with both the policemen and the German officers. I assume indiscriminate connections meant mm. sex work. Yeah. In 1943, she became ill with syphilis and was referred for treatment to one of the rear hospitals. As the Red Army entered the Lokot region, they found remains of about 1,500 people whom Antonina had executed. Soviet troops captured and killed many Nazi collaborators, but during the liberation of Elbo by the Red Army in September 1943, Antonina was not there because she was being treated for syphilis. Having recovered, Antonina met with a German corporal whose military unit retreated to the West and asked for it as a servant and mistress. She deserted from the ranks of collaborators, and in the future, according to some sources, the corporal died. And according to others, he just couldn't cover his fellow traveler for a long time, and Antonina was driven into a common convoy with other refugees and sent to East Prussia. There she came to forced labor at a military factory, becoming one of the millions of Soviet Osterbeiters, which the definition was adopted in Third Reich to refer to people taken out of Eastern Europe with the aim of using them as free or low-paid labor. Mm. In 1945, Soviet soldiers liberated them, but due to the huge number of ex-prisoners of war, the filtration of people at this time was pretty superficial. So Antonina gave the Soviet law enforcement agencies her real data, hiding only the fact of working for the Germans, and successfully passed the filtering. Mm. So, she was reinstated in service and hit the 1st Moscow Division. In summer of 1945, due to health problems, Antonina was hospitalized. Here, she was demobilized and remained to work as a civil nurse. In August, Antonina met with a mortar and a guard, a private soldier, Victor Ginsberg, who was on treatment. He went through the whole war, and in the spring of 1945, he accomplished the feat, having destroyed about 15 enemy soldiers in one battle and received a heavy concussion. Antonina and Victor began to live together, and in 1947, after the birth of their first child, they entered into to marriage. Ooh. They moved to the homeland 
of Victor to Belarus. Antonino was trying to arrange a family relocation to Poland, but nothing came of it. In 1961, she got a job at the Lip. Lipel Industrial Complex, which soon gave her an apartment. In Lipel, they she was considered a respected war veteran because they didn't know she ended up working for the Nazis. Huh. She participated in meetings with school children. Her photos were displayed on the Hall of Fame. Oh, my gosh. So the KGB kept the case of this executioner open for many years, but they couldn't find the right... Antonina Makarova. And actually, the way she ended up with her last name Makarova was her dad's first name is Makar, and her first day of grade school, she couldn't remember her last name, so they put her dad's name like that, and it just stayed like that. So her real last name is Parfenov. And in 1976, a Soviet army officer named Parfenov was registering some documents of his relatives in order to get a visa. He found out everyone in his family had the last name Parfenov, save one, a woman named Antonina Makarova, Ginsburg after marriage. So she was later recognized by several witnesses who'd known her during the war, and she was arrested in the summer of 1978. Wow. Yes. So the KGB managed to collect so much evidence by this time that the honored worker of the Lipil Industrial Complex had no other choice but to admit that she really was the famous Lokat executioner. When traveling to Lokat, she clarified some details and accurately indicated the location of the shootings. In early November 1978, court proceedings began in the case of a female executioner. The witnesses who spoke at the trial said that they had seen Tonka the Machine Gunner in nightmarish dreams for years. Interesting. During interrogation, Antonina described her attitude towards the executed as, I did not know who I killed, they didn't know me, so I was not ashamed before them. Wow. Sometimes you shoot, you come closer, and and some people still move. Then I shot again in the head. All those sentenced to death were the same for me, only their number changed. Usually I was ordered to kill a group of 27 people, because that was how many partisans fit into the room for execution. At the command of the authorities, I knelt and shot at people until they fell to the ground. While in the pre-trial detention center, Antonina behaved coolly, sure that she would not receive more than three years imprisonment. She also claimed during the interrogation that she regarded executions as an ordinary cost of wartime and committed up to three executions each day. Wow. So she was... These were civilians. Some right? of them were civilians. Some of them were obviously people who were Soviet party mm. members and Soviet gotcha. soldiers. According to independent estimates, she shot about 1,500 people while working for the Germans. Holy shit. Yes. But passport data for only 168 people was able to be recovered. Mainly Soviet partisans, members of their families, and civilians, including women, children, and the elderly, were subjected to executions. During the investigation... Wait, say that again? Mainly Soviet partisans, members of their families, and civilians, including women, children, and the elderly, were subjected to executions. As in? People who were members of the Soviet party. I gotcha. So, not Nazis. But um, women and children were? Yeah, family members, old people. They were God fucking damn. Nazis. Yeah, but still. Um, Kids. During the investigation, Antonina did not talk about her family and did not want to communicate with them. Victor, her husband, not knowing the reason for his wife's arrest, repeatedly tried to obtain her release. He threatened the investigators that he would write a complaint to the UN and to Soviet General Secretary Brezhnev. Because of this, the investigators told him the whole truth, and it's reported that Victor became gray and aged in one night. He immediately took his daughters and left Lipo. It's like, can um, you imagine? Because he was a Soviet soldier. Yeah. And he's thinking this whole time, oh, we're both these great Soviet 
veterans. Meanwhile, she's killing them. On November 20th, 1978, Antonina pled guilty to the proven number of 168 people. But when she found out that she was sentenced to be shot, she applied for pardon several times. All her petitions were rejected. On August 11th, 1979, at 6 a.m., the death sentence was carried out. So she was shot to death. Wow. Yeah, so she basically, like, didn't see her victims as human. She was like, oh, no, these are just people that I'm ordered to kill. So since I'm told to do it, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm just following orders, which... Wrong-o. Kind of like ICE when we look back at them in, say, 40 years. Yeah. It's going to be the same shit. Damn. That was interesting. That was Antonina Makarova. Nice one. Thank you. I'm going to tell you about Cynthia Kaufman. Ooh. Ever heard of her? I know the name, but I don't remember the crime. So, Cynthia Kaufman was born in St. Louis, Missouri on January 19th, 1962. She would become the first woman to be sentenced to the death penalty in California since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1977. So, in collaboration with her then-boyfriend James Marlowe, who was also sentenced to death, Cynthia received two death sentences for the 1986 San Bernardino um, kidnapping, rodomy, rodomy, robbery, sodomy, and murder of 20-year-old Karina Novis, and the kidnapping and murder of 19-year-old Linnell Murray. Holy shit. Or Murray, probably. The couple were accused of killing four women. There was not a ton of sources for this case. So I got most of the information from Murderpedia and a 1992 LA Times article by Nancy Ride called Condemned and Waiting. And it was kind of hard to piece it together because I was looking at the trial documents and it was just so stuffed with things and there's a lot so this is just a synopsis so like i said she was born in st louis cynthia kaufman raised in a lower middle class family her father had left the family by the time cynthia was six years old and allegedly her mother had tried to give cynthia and her brothers away Damn. In the LA Times article, Cynthia is quoted, to get attention, I'd get in trouble. For that, I'll always remember the taste of Dove. Uh, Not the chocolate, uh, but the soap. Uh, <laughs> Cynthia started smoking pot her sophomore year of high school. Same. She, yeah. She got pregnant with her son, Josh, and was married by 18, but the marriage ended after just a little over a year. Cynthia was working a swing shift at a carburetor factory and was struggling to support herself and her son. So Cynthia decided to leave her dead-end job and traveled to Page, Arizona with a girlfriend to, like, start her life over. But she didn't take Josh with her, her kid, but planned to bring him once she, like, settled. I'm guessing he stayed with her mom, who allegedly tried to give her away. What the fuck? I don't know. He doesn't come up anymore. But as soon as she got (laughs) to Arizona, apparently she wanted to find herself a man immediately, and she found one. So sometime after moving to Arizona, she ended up in California. So just to provide some background about how Cynthia and James Marlowe got together, on May 8th, 1986, in Barstow, California, Cynthia and her unnamed ex-boyfriend, who was friends with James, were pulled over for running a stop sign. The police recovered a loaded gun and meth in Cynthia's purse, and they were both arrested. Cynthia's charges were dropped. Did you say a gun and meth? A loaded gun and meth. Wow. Cynthia's charges were dropped, and her boyfriend spent six weeks in jail for a prior warrant. It was during one of Cynthia's visits to her boyfriend in jail that she met his cellmate, James Marlowe. Oh. Yep. He was in jail for stealing his sixth wife's car. Oh, my God. Yeah. So James started stealing at the age of 10. 
He served three years in Folsom Prison from 1980 to 1983 for a series of home invasions and knife point robberies. During his time in Folsom, he earned the reputation as the Folsom Wolf. Going with the Nazi theme, he displayed his neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood tattoos. Disgusting. Disgusting. And they let him out of prison after three years. Of course they did. So, of course, it was love at first sight. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it was love at first sight. <laughs> Cynthia and James left California in June 1986. James had family in Border South. And those that title's capitalized. So, I tried to look up where Border South is. But, I don't know. So, eventually, they end up in, like, Kentucky and Tennessee. So, I'm wondering if it was, like, the border of the southern mm-hmm. states. I don't fucking know. Anyway, where his family was there, they crashed when they could, but not without taking some valuables on their way out. Mm -hmm. His family eventually was like, nope, no more. And they ended up staying in the woods. Oh, my God. Where she got lice and he had to bathe himself in kerosene because of chigger bites. Oh, shit. Is that what you do? (laughs) Romantic. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, That's meth. There's no mention of meth in any of the articles, but I'm like, this they, sounds like they were they were on meth. They yeah. were on drugs. <laughs> on July 26, 1986, they were linked to a Cynthia and James were linked to a home burglary in Whitley County, Kentucky, leaving with cash, jewelry, and a shotgun. A few days later, the couple were unofficially married on top of a Harley motorcycle in Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> I picked the wrong time to take a drink of water. <laughs> what? unofficially married it wasn't like they weren't legally married but were they like tandem on one or each on a motorcycle there's no pictures god fuck well that same day cynthia got a tattoo on her butt that says i belong to Folsom wolf Uh, yeah so according to cynthia james was abusive controlling he would starve her and beat her and then be super sweet to her you know like the typical cycle of abuse so and of course like just given his history, like, white supremacists don't typically treat treat women, people, people well. well. <laughs> so, let's get into it. So, on October 11th, Libra season, 1986, 32-year-old Sandra Neary left her house in Costa Mesa, California, to get some cash on an ATM. Sandra never returned home, and her car was found in a nearby parking lot. Two weeks later, Sandra's body was found by hikers in Riverside County. On October 28, 1986, 35-year-old Pamela Simmons was reported missing in Bullhead, Arizona. Her car was found abandoned near a police station. Police theory is she was kidnapped while withdrawing money from her ATM. She was also killed, but it does not say how she was killed or if her body was found. I'm guessing it was, but the article just said, like, Pamela Simmons, who was also died, but didn't really give much. On November 7th, 1986, Karina Novis was kidnapped from Redlands Mall in San Bernardino County in broad daylight. Cynthia and James approached her asking her for a ride. She was taken by Cynthia and James to a house of a friend of James, where she was handcuffed, gagged, and sexually assaulted. Mm. Karina was found buried face down in a Fontana field. She was strangled to death. Cynthia and James drove Karina's car, used it for their own personal benefit. Wow. And they even went to her home and collected an answering machine and a typewriter that they tried to pawn. They eventually gave some items to James's sister who comes up and was charged as like a witness and accessory to like the kidnapping. But I don't know how what happened to that because she witnessed 
Karina there and had, they had her tied up and everything. Mm. So Cynthia and James drove her card down to Orange County, where they also used her debit card and credit cards for like motels and food. Wow. So on November 12th, 1986, in Orange County, Linnell Murray's boyfriend reported her missing after she didn't keep a date or an appointment after work. Linnell was a psychology student and she worked at a dry cleaner. Her boyfriend found her car at the dry cleaner where she worked, um, abandoned, but she wasn't there. A day later, Linnell's naked body was found in a Huntington Beach motel. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted and was left face down in the bathtub. God. Linnell and Karina apparently looked like very similar to each other. Like they both had like long brown hair and they just like had very similar features. Mm. So that was noted. Cynthia and James had robbed the dry cleaner store of cash and clothes before they forced Linnell into Karina's car. So the previous victim's car yeah. where they before driving to Huntington Beach. So police were looking for a break in Karina's case when it finally happened. Karina's checkbook was found in a Laguna Niguel dumpster tucked inside a fast food takeout bag with some papers that had the names Cynthia Kaufman and James Marlowe on it. This is like drugs had to be. Yeah. Unless they're just stupid. But thank God they're idiots. So around the same time, James and Cynthia were linked to a San Bernardino motel room and the manager found stationery where someone was practicing Linnell Murray's signature. Mm-hmm. Looking at James's criminal record, they didn't have, they just kind of knew because he had been in and out of jail for like robbery and stuff. Yeah. And so they issued a statewide alert for Cynthia Kaufman and James Marlowe. So they had the names from the takeout bag and they linked them to that motel. Boom. Shit. So on November 14th, 1986, police were called to a mountain lodge at Big Bear City, California, where the owner of the lodge identified the latest guests as Cynthia and James. So a 100 man crew found the lodge empty. They fanned out through the woods for a sweep and around 3 p.m., they found Cynthia and James hiking along some mountain road. So Cynthia and James surrendered without a fight. They were both wearing outfits stolen from the dry cleaners. Oh, shit. Yep. Where Linnell Murray worked. So at the motel, police also found a bunch of earrings that are described as, like, trophies. Yeah. Within hours of their arrest, Cynthia informed the police where they would find Karina's body, which is how they found her face down Mm -hmm. in that shallow grave because Cynthia told them. Both Cynthia and James were charged with murder and held in jail without bond. They found fingerprints all over Karina's car, and Cynthia was linked to pawning the answering machine and typewriter. So, 32 months go by before they went to trial. And in the meantime, James and Cynthia kind of, they described it had a falling out. And they began pointing fingers at each other, blaming each other for this. This person wanted to kill this person. No, he wanted to kill them. She was responsible for these two, blah, blah, blah. Uh On one jailhouse visit, Cynthia's lawyer asked if there was anything she needed from the outside world. Oh, God. (laughs) She said, yeah, she told him, pointing to her backside. You can find someone to help me lose this damn tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) So from what I was able able to understand from the documents is they were tried together. Although there was plenty of independent evidence for two separate trials, apparently each defense was so inconsistent and the case was so strong that any error would have been harmless beyond reasonable doubt. So it didn't really matter. Cynthia's defense included an expert on battered women who testified that James beat Cynthia and that he was this white supremacist. Marlo denied all of that 
though. Of course. I don't. Cynthia's testimony that she only went along with it because he be and threatened her was rejected. So, you know, they went back and forth. He said that she was responsible for the California killings, and so it was four total. So Cynthia and James were unanimously convicted of murder and sentenced to death, where she remains on death row to this day. That's, That's Cynthia. Those? Kaufman. Serial killer couples, it blows my mind. It's like, how did fate come together that you fuckers met? God damn. They met in jail in, during a visit. Does it come full circle? Because yeah. she went to Arizona, wanted to find herself a man immediately. She found one. They both went to jail. She was released, but ended up falling in love with his cellmate. Oh, my God. And then end up going on a serial killing spree. Like, they killed women. They targeted them going to ATMs because they wanted to rob them, get their money, and then decided mm-hmm. to kill them. That's like some sexual fetish fantasy going on there, too. Yeah. Which I'm sure, like, he probably led the way. But I don't know. That's just me assuming. But you've also got to consider, you know, she was physically and probably emotionally and mentally abused and damaged from this guy. Her dad left. Her mom tried to sell her. Yikes. She doesn't have... You know, I I don't know what her confidence was like. There weren't any interviews for me to, like, see her talk or see her body language Mm -hmm. or anything. But but who knows? Who knows what goes on in the human brain during these types of things? And especially once you do it once, you think you could probably do it again. Uh But I don't know. I'm not a profiler, so. No. But anyway. Have you listened to Dirty John? No. I... So last week I binge listened to it and then I watched it on Netflix because it took me so long to, I was like avoiding it because I thought it was fictional. I didn't realize it was like an actual story. Oh my God. No, it's real. Yeah. Oh. It hits different. The woman and her mom make me so fucking mad. I don't know anything about it. Uh, Because I know they made it into that Netflix show. It was really popular. Yeah. Yeah, I watched it. So, in the last episode, I kept saying that Mary Surratt's hands and feet and then legs and ankles were cuffed. Mm -hmm. I meant ankles and wrists. (laughs) I listened back to them like, how do you cuff someone's feet? How do you cuff someone's hands? So, yeah. What else? Oh, so I would like to set a goal. I really want to see 50 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Ooh. Let's get there. We're at 21 now. I think we can do it. So we just need 29 more people to, uh, right? Yeah, 29 more people to, um, I think, Review. to do some reviews. So let's get to 50. I like reading reviews. I think you do too. I do. It's really fun. It is. And yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. But I don't know. <sighs> What else is there? There was something else. Damn it. I was like, oh, I'll remember. Fucker. Is it related to podcasts? It's true crime related. I don't recall. I've been watching, mm-hmm. is it Elizabeth Vargas with the A&E investigations? She has this show on A&E where they're reinvestigating, like she hired ex-FBI people to reinvestigate JonBenet Ramsey's case. Oh. Yeah. And so they follow a couple of leads that seem like they're going to check out, but they don't. It was pretty interesting. I think there's going to be different parts, but there was episode one was like an hour and a half long. It was really good. I still think the brother did it. I was going to say the brother did it. Parents covered it up. (laughs) a piece of DNA that doesn't match anyone in the family that was found. It's so, like DNA is so finicky though, because it could have come from the factory because that's the DNA on her underwear. It could have come from the factory that it was made in. Yeah. It's such a small amount of DNA that it's inconclusive. Wow. Well, I wish I could remember what the fuck else I was going to say. It's okay, you'll think of it later. And then I'll be like, God damn it. You can always add it. I know. 
What if I start just adding my own little shit <laughs> so, at the end of every episode? P.S. <laughs> I mean, it's not here right now, but here's what I wanted to say. <laughs> we sound enough alike that you could probably sound like me. Um, But thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been so fun. It is. If you're new, please follow, subscribe, rate, review. I don't know of any other podcast platforms that you can leave a review on. I think just Apple. I, I think it. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, 50 reviews would be super cool. Yes. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yep. Womenofdeathrow.com. Yeah. We'll have all the episodes on there, and we're working on getting the blog posts up for the episodes, too. Yes. So subscribe and download our episodes, please. That's the best way you can support us is downloading, subscribing, and rating. Thank you. Thanks. Until next time, have a good week. Bye. Yes. Bye. Bye.